On February 20th, 1939, over 20,000 people gathered in the Madison Square Garden Arena in Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan. They were there for a pro-American rally organized by a group called the German-American Bund. On stage, massive paintings of George Washington were surrounded by American flags and swastikas. Speakers called Washington the first fascist, and James Wheeler Hill, the secretary of the Bund, opened his speech by saying, if George Washington were alive today, he would be friends with Adolf Hitler. Gerhard Kunze, another member of the group's board, conveyed in his speech that the ideals of Nazism were inseparable from the founding ideas of America, saying that the spirit which opened the West and built our country is the spirit of the militant white man. It has then always been very much American to protect the Aryan character of this nation. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Madison Square Garden rally, but also on a more macro level, the history of fascist movements in the United States. For the sake of my poor little brain, I'm going to try to limit the scope of this episode to exclude the post-war neo-Nazi movement, though there's certainly quite a lot to be talked about there. If you're disappointed by that decision, then I'd encourage you to check out the description where I'll put some clearly identified sources for further reading. Just in thinking about it now, there's really an overwhelming amount of history in the immediate and near post-war period that I wish I could cover in this episode, like how the U.S. brought 1,600 Nazis, many of whom were war criminals, into the United States in order to help develop NASA, or the story of how exactly Adolf Heusinger, a close confidant of Hitler and a member of the Nazi High Command, came to sit as the head of the NATO Military Committee. But unfortunately, that goes a little beyond the scope of this episode, though those are things I'd very much like to cover in the future. And so, without further ado, you're listening to Hidden History. My name is Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 100, Fascist USA. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. Special thanks in this episode goes out to David Cooper and Gigi Wink, the show's newest supporters on Patreon. If you enjoyed this episode or maybe are a first-time listener, then I'd love it if you considered subscribing or shared this episode with a friend. I do want to take just a moment to sincerely thank everyone who has listened to and supported the show in any capacity over the past four years. When I first started out, I would read scripts live on air on my college's radio station. (laughs) I distinctly remember that I had to restart my second episode about three times because I kept messing up. Unsure of how many people, if any at all, had heard my embarrassing mistakes. Back then, I never imagined that I would make it all the way to episode 100, and that journey has been made possible entirely by you. Thanks to you, the listeners, Hidden History has gone from an amateurish college radio hour to a slightly less amateurish postgraduate radio quarter hour, and I couldn't be happier. Writing this show over the years has presented me with a tremendous opportunity to learn about new things, and I hope that that's something I've been able to impart unto you as well. I don't quite know if I've got another hundred episodes left in me, but I'm certainly going to try. 
and I hope that in the weeks and months to come, you'll join me on this journey to further interrogate the world around us. And with that, let's get on to the show. So it probably seems like the logical starting point for an episode about Nazism in America would be after 1933, when Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. But doing so would actually be an incredible disservice. Yes, 1933 is when America gets its first Nazi party, the Friends of New Germany. But in order for these new political parties to gain any members, there first has to be a culture that has acclimated them to the point where they believe that the ideas of Nazism are acceptable. To put it more simply, there has to be an instrument of radicalization that creates far-right extremists. Now, of course, because there were and are American Nazis, that mechanism obviously exists. But clearly defining it is not such an easy thing. Thousands of academics and activists have devoted their entire working lives to determining what radicalizes people and pushes them to the far right. And of course, it turns out that there is no formulaic answer. And so instead of making a half-baked attempt at a grand overarching thesis as to why people become Nazis, I'd like to take a somewhat different direction. Those men I mentioned in the introduction, James Wheeler Hill and Gerhard Kunze, they believed that the ideal of fascism was innate to the United States. That even though it wouldn't be coined until 1919, the founders of America practiced fascism in all but name. To the members of the German-American Bund, this was a point of incredible pride. They certainly make an interesting point, but it isn't the one they thought they were making. Because if we want to talk about how the politics of Nazi Germany influenced the United States, we first need to talk about how the politics of the United States influenced Nazi Germany. One of the most consequential pieces of legislation for Jews in Nazi Germany were the Nuremberg Laws, which forbade marriage and sex between Jews and Gentiles, defined Jewishness based on proportion of Jewish blood, and revoked citizenship from all people of Jewish ancestry in Germany. These laws were directly inspired by American one-drop legislation defining anyone with black ancestry as black. They were also heavily influenced by Chinese exclusion laws, as well as laws outlawing interracial relationships, some of which ultimately stayed on the books in some states until 1967. Hitler himself said as much in Mein Kampf, where he praised the organization and ruthlessness of the American apartheid state. When Hitler was in prison in 1924, he read volumes on the American eugenics movement, which would go on to directly inspire the Nazi T4 program, which oversaw the murder of 300,000 disabled people. This is, of course, entirely without mentioning the fact that the Nazis highly admired the efficiency and brutality with which the United States exterminated its native population, with Hitler noting approvingly that white Americans had, quote, gunned down millions of redskins. Anyway, I've done a number of episodes that touch on the American eugenics movement, so I'm not going to rehash that information here. Instead, I want to take a second to talk about the cultural politics of the 1920s, particularly in regard to the most core tenet of Nazism, anti-Semitism. The United States was and is an incredibly anti-Semitic country, and since it would probably take a thousand pages to adequately summarize the history of it in America, I'd like to use one notable case as a representative story, and that is the anti-Semitism of Henry Ford. 
Ford was one of the most prolific anti-Semites of his day. If you're somewhat familiar with this area of history, surely you've heard of the fabricated anti-Semitic text, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was first published in 1902 and attempted to portray itself as a record of a Jewish plot for world domination. The falsehood of the document was first exposed in 1921, but that didn't stop Henry Ford from personally funding and printing the distribution of half a million copies of it throughout the 1920s. Ford also owned the Dearborn Publishing Company, which was responsible for the writing and publication of the Dearborn Independent, a newspaper Ford bought in order to circulate his beliefs that Jewish bankers had intentionally caused World War I. The Independent became the second most read paper in the country, and for 91 straight weeks bore headlines that spoke of a new form of Jewish conspiracy. Ford then took the most vile of these stories and compiled them into a book called The International Jew, which saw an initial print run of just under 500,000, and was soon followed by three more editions. Ford continued to spew hate publicly up until 1927, when he was forced to issue an apology for his actions. He neither wrote the apology nor signed it, his signature supposedly being forged by head of Ford security Harry Bennett. In 1938, on the occasion of his 75th birthday, Henry Ford was awarded the Grand Cross of the German Eagle, the highest honor the Nazi regime could bestow on a foreign citizen. Nazis testifying at the Nuremberg trials would later say that reading Ford's international Jew was what made them anti-Semitic. So we've established three things. That American race laws were the blueprint for Nazi race laws. That American eugenics programs were the basis for Nazi extermination programs. And that anti-Semitism was a powerful and popular force. With those three elements in play, it seems like America would be ripe for the picking by right-wing extremists. So that brings us back to the beginning. Let's talk about the German-American Bund. Fascism in the full 20th century sense of the word first comes to America around 1923, when a number of Italian immigrants formed small political groups aligned with Benito Mussolini, they were then absorbed by the Fascist League of North America, which was established in 1924, and was seen by the American government as a bulwark against communism. The FLNA was dissolved in 1929 at the request of Mussolini himself, who saw the League as a troublemaker for his new government. Though the mantle of fascist paramilitary group was not interrupted, a pro-Nazi group called the Free Society of Teutonia had been founded in 1924. The group, which in 1932 changed its name to the Friends of the Hitler Movement, was dissolved in 1933 with the creation of an official American Nazi party, sanctioned by Rudolf Hess, called the Friends of New Germany. When FDR was elected in 1932, various Nazi groups did in fact make plans for a coup. In December 1935, the Friends were dissolved too and existing members were transferred over to the newly formed German-American Bund, and Fritz Julius Kuhn, a German-born American citizen, was selected as its leader. Befitting of a Nazi, Kuhn was a liar and a thief, yet somehow managed to unite various far-right groups under a single banner. 
creating a rigid managerial structure that mimicked the administrative body of the Nazi government. The Bund created their own version of the Hitler Youth, which it used to indoctrinate children in summer camps across the East Coast. They used their members to target trade unionists, leftists, Jews, and racial minorities. They even stormed newspaper offices and demanded they print pro-Nazi articles. Eventually, the Bund began to enter a period of decline. It had never experienced wide popularity and, as a matter of fact, faced fierce opposition wherever they went. In order to reverse their fortunes, Julius Kuhn planned a grand rally in Madison Square Garden. Now, I should take this moment to clarify for my non-American or non-Mid-Atlantic listeners that the Madison Square Garden Arena in New York City has gone through four different incarnations, each located in a different place. I talk about the second garden in episode 41, and in this episode I'm talking about the third garden. The stadium currently above Penn Station is the fourth garden. So anyway, in an attempt to reverse their fortunes, the Bund decides to generate an incredible amount of controversy and attention with a massive rally at Madison Square Garden. While they filled the garden with 20,000 Nazis, outside there were 100,000 counter-protesters ready to stand against fascism. Inside the arena, Julius Kuhn and his cronies spoke of President Roosevelt as President Rosenfeld, waved swastikas, and sang anti-Semitic songs. Eventually, in the middle of a speech dripping with anti-Semitic venom, a young Jewish man named Isidore Greenbaum rushed the stage and was beaten, almost to death, by scores of Nazi thugs. Of course, the NYPD arrested Greenbaum on a charge of disorderly conduct and did nothing to his assailants. When the rally finally ended late into the night, those 20,000 Nazis buttoned up their coats and were safely escorted home by the police. Unsurprisingly, it turned out that the German-American Bund's grand plan had backfired, not only did it hasten its decline, but it inspired the federal government to investigate the organization, eventually finding that Julius Kuhn had embezzled the modern equivalent of over a quarter million dollars from the group. Though the Bund operated on the principle of Führer Prinzip, making everything Kuhn did and said above written law, the U.S. government didn't see it that way, sending him to Sing Sing prison for tax evasion and embezzlement. The German-American Bund fell apart soon after that, its leaders fleeing the country upon America's entry into World War II. While Kuhn was in prison, his citizenship was revoked and he was deported, ultimately dying in Munich in 1951. Though it may have been the end for the German-American Bund, it was far from the end for Nazism and far-right extremism in the United States. I hope that this episode has done a somewhat adequate job of covering the conditions that allowed Nazism to flourish in the United States, and has potentially made you give pause and reflect on the role that the United States plays in the export of extremism. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider subscribing, leaving a rating, or sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.